Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Today, we're going to talk about a few different issues, but, you know, the issue I'm going to start off talking about is one we're going to get to. I don't think it's the first topic we're going to get to, but it it is so eating at me. I'm just going to kind of dive into it and preview it a bit first. And that is that the federal judiciary has just let us down in a global sense, dealing with a renegade ex-president. And, you know, this morning, and just to remind you, we record our podcast uh, usually 12, 12, you know, starting 12, 1230 on Wednesdays. So that's when we're when we're recording this. It's uh, January 31st, uh, 2024. I've been uh, working on a post about this this morning, which I haven't published yet. It'll almost certainly be published by the time you listen to this podcast. And it's it's basically making the argument that I, I just kind of uh, introduced right there. And, you know, we know that. During uh, Donald Trump's term as president, he appointed all sorts of judges, many of a of a fairly corrupt nature. He got three, you know, an almost it it may be unprecedented, at least in the modern era, uh, three Supreme Court appointments. You know, really radically changed the the nature of the Supreme Court. The point is, we know about that. We know that. Uh, there are lots of uh, Trump appointees now who judge cases along, certainly along the ideological preferences of Donald Trump, but often to suit the electoral political needs of Donald Trump. But I'm not even talking about that. 
I'm talking about the federal judges who are, you know, fair minded people. They're not trying to do the bidding of Donald Trump, but through a mix of established courtesies, just the kind of the lackadaisical way things are done um, and inertia have allowed Donald Trump to practice a policy of delay, which has largely succeeded for him. He's largely gotten his way. And as we know, the various cases outstanding uh, against Donald Trump, four of them, as we know, they're all kind of on this, you know, they're they're all on a tight timeline because if Donald Trump is elected president again, they all go away. And one of the things that we have been, we and and many others have been reporting on over the last, you know, several months has been this appeal that Trump lawyers have made, basically saying that presidents are immune from prosecution forever, not just when they're serving as president, just always. They can never be prosecuted for anything 10 years after they leave office anytime. Okay. Virtually no one thinks this claim has any merit. If it did, it would it would upend centuries of assumptions and jurisprudence about how the U.S. Constitution works. But it doesn't have to have merit because the point is to is to kind of incrementally delay these trials, get it into the window of time where he, through various mechanisms as president, could just make them go away. We know this, and you've got this crooked judge down in Florida who's already basically sabotaged the the classified documents case. That one's basically done. But it's it's the one in D.C. about Trump's attempted coup. That's the primary case. That's the one that matters the most. How you how you handle classified documents is very important. It's not nearly as important as trying to overthrow the government. So Jack Smith the the federal prosecutor who is who is managing these cases back i don't know 6 weeks ago something like that maybe 8 weeks ago tried to go directly to the supreme court to say this is going to come to you guys this is of overriding national importance let's just cut to the chase you tell us whether this appeal whether presidents are actually immune from the law forever the supreme court apparently with the agreement of the three non-Republican judges, declined to take it up, seemed to be saying, we're not going to kind of leapfrog here. We're going to let the D.C. Circuit make its ruling, and then and then we'll take it up. And that would be the normal course of events. Now, that made various people uh, suspicious, but it did seem that the three Democratic-appointed judges were cool with it. And the DC circuit seemed to have the bit in their teeth to let, let's move quickly here. And as long as that's the case, there is a certain logic to what the Supreme Court is saying. Like, let the DC circuit do this. You know, we'll look at it. And presumably, since the thing has no merit to start with, that'll be it. And the assumption was that the D.C. Circuit, you know, a matter of days. It's not a hard case. It's not a hard question. It's really pretty straightforward. 
and they had already done, you know, expedited hearings and 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 so forth. And I think it's now three weeks ago. Everybody's been waiting. What's what's going on? And with that expedited thing, you know, that's a that's a basic thing because you have to expedite them because the federal judiciary moves very slowly. And, you know, maybe in a lot of cases, that's OK. Um, in this case, it's clearly a matter of of great overriding national importance. So everybody's been wondering what's going on here. Is it that complicated? So today, a piece came in, uh, came out in Politico that seems to have stated openly what a growing number of people are suspecting, that one of the three judges on this panel that is going to review this, Republican appointed judge, not Trump, but Republican appointed judge, that judge seems to be sitting on it, taking a long time to write it. Who knows? Right. But the clock's ticking. And this is part of a common story that we have seen really for the last six years or so. And there, you know, David Kurtz, our executive editor at TPM, did a did a he he writes our 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 daily morning memo and he devoted a an addition of that to this where he did a kind of a mea culpa, you know, because David's a, a, I guess, a lapsed lawyer. He was he uh, he was a journalist, then he was a lawyer, then he came back, came to TPM, became a journalist again. You know, roughly, that's the the time. The point is, he's a lawyer in addition to be a, being a journalist. And he had a kind of a mea culpa because internally at TPM, but also in, in things he writes, he was basically the one saying, hey, takes time. Not, every, you know, judicial system doesn't turn on a dime. You got to give it time. This is how it works. But over the years or, or whatever, you start to realize, you know what? It hasn't worked. And you've got a lot of judges who seem caught up in, again, the, how to say it, the non-essential established courtesies that a bad actor can exploit to permanently evade the reach of the law. And that is what has happened. And in an earlier conversation, uh, one of our, an editorial conversation that we had that David and I were both in, you know, one of the questions when this ruling from the D.C., circuit comes in is the standard thing would be to give Trump 30 days to decide if he's even going to appeal it. You know, a courtesy. Give him a month to look it over, blah, 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 blah. And that's another 30 days that that Trump potentially gets to delay this trial and put it past the election. And but in this case, does he need 30 days? Is he is he going to appeal it? The whole point is this is a, a delay process. So, of course, he's going to appeal it. Right. That's the whole point. And what is there? What is there to look at? You know, most you don't need 30 days. You don't need 30 days when the whole thing is a specious claim. If, if you really need to kind of look it over closely, uh, take a long weekend. 
take four days. But my point here is that everybody who's trying to figure out whether this trial will take place before Donald Trump has the ability to just make it disappear has to wonder about, will the judges decide, will the judges take any cognizance of what's going on? And who knows, maybe they'll say, you know, they did expedite in the, uh, you know, the initial hearing, but maybe they will, maybe they won't. And, and that in itself is an indication that no one really has any confidence that there is any seriousness or cognizance about what is going on beyond the sort of narrow established processes for how lawyers and judges manage their calendars and deal with those courtesies and so forth. Justice delayed is justice denied. I think it's probably the case still that this that this trial is going to is going to take place this calendar year, you know, possibly even in the spring or the summer. But who knows? The federal judiciary has really let us down is is the only way to put it. And again, I'm not talking about the 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 crooked Republican appointees who basically see themselves as you know, outside counsel for Donald Trump. I'm saying the ones who are really doing a serious job of trying to be federal judges, they've let us down. There's no other, um, there's no other way to put it. So that's what I wanted to share with you on to start out this episode of the podcast. Before we get into the podcast proper, let me uh, share some information with you. Support for this podcast comes from W.W. Norton and Company, the independent and employee-owned publisher of The Truce by Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin. The Truce explores the major fault lines that define democratic politics today and asks big questions about the future of the party. Will economic or social justice hold primacy at the top of the democratic agenda? Who will lead the major wings of the party? after the two defining figures, Biden and Sanders, exit the stage. The truce surveys the major shifts underway from the rise of the squad and new Democratic leadership in the House to a complete overhaul of the primary process. By digging into the divide between the left and the center, journalist Hunter Walker of Talking Points Memo and Lupe B. Lupin expose the creeping generational and political tensions that Biden has for the moment kept at bay, you know, has, maybe maybe he hasn't kept him at bay anymore, right? No kind of little uh, little update to the copy, but you get the idea. For the period covered in in the book, he had kept them at bay. The Truce by Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, available now wherever books are sold. So check it out. And uh, Kate Riga, what the fuck? What's what's going on here with the federal judiciary? I blame you. You cover this for us. What's what's go, what's going wrong here? Yeah, I mean, the that Politico piece you reference just kind of I think it was pretty clear that they were writing their speculation. It didn't really read to me as reported information. But the speculation is that you've got two Biden appointees and one Bush appointee on the panel. And the Bush appointee, she was the only one who objected to expediting it in those early stages. She asked, you know, kind of. I would say the political piece described her questions as cryptic, which I think was appropriate. I don't think her questions really tipped her cards one way or the other. But the other two were pretty 
obviously hostile to the arguments. So that leads you to the conclusion that if someone is writing in a way that's taking a long time, odds are it's her, right? I mean, she is the most senior judge. So even if she's in the majority, she can pick herself to write it. And if she's writing in dissent, there you go. I mean, there you'll have the delay as well. And I think the thing that's tricky is oral arguments were January 8th. It's now January 31st. In any other context, this would still be lightning fast for the judiciary to kind of work. But most of us, I think, coming out of oral arguments, we're expecting within days to hear one way or the other. Because as you say, Trump will probably ask the full circuit to hear it on bonk, it's called. So that would be another step. I would guess maybe the full circuit would reject that because of its kind of overall liberal lean, though you know, the, the other kind of compelling interest in this, as we've discussed in a prior episode, is that it's both, you know, unprecedented. So so I think all the judges involved are aware that they're kind of writing for posterity right now. And also, they're aware that this is going to get appealed the life out of it, right? So you do, you do want to be as airtight as possible. But whether or not the full circuit takes it up, and if they do, we got more delay on the way there. It'll almost certainly go back up to the Supreme Court and then they'll have lots of latitude, right, to kind of hunt it if they want. And particularly if this case you know, goes from the panel to the full circuit to the Supreme Court and we could be looking at this stuff happening, you know, in, in the summer even. It could be where we are by that point. It, then the Supreme Court might well just kind of be like, Uh, Our sporadic use of the Purcell principle, we don't want to interfere with elections. We're going to punt this decision until after the election, you know. So this was always a tight timeline. Getting this done by March was going to require kind of everyone involved to, as you as you said in the opening, reject his pretty naked bids to stretch this out as long as possible to just kind of shut him down and be like, nope, we're not entertaining that. Like, thank you for your motion. Rejected hours later. Here we go. Um, So this is like certainly not a good first step because we didn't expect the lags to come at this step. We're expecting the procrastination to come at a higher level. So the fact that it's already happening doesn't really bode well for the timeliness element here, even though it's still really hard for me to see the panel, at least, coming down with anything but a rejection of his arguments, given how the oral argument went and how kind of open the judges were with their disdain. You know, and then the other piece is they also might be writing about the jurisdictional question, right, which came up at arguments as well. Can we even decide this right now? All that being said, though, I mean, come on, you know, like, let's go. It's been weeks and we've got the the thing about this is so frustrating is there's just like no indication. There's no way to kind of know how far along in their process they are unless like one of their clerks were to leak something, which is, you know, quite unusual. So we're all just kind of trying to like read tea leaves out of nothing right now. Well, you know, I mean, I think one thing that people can say about this is that judges should not rush things because people in the political square think, oh, we need Trump to be convicted before the election. But that's that's a dodge. That's a dodge. It is part of the rule of law that the law has a methodical process. That is, there's an element in which delay is part of the rule of law. It's a system. It's a a system of, of, of rules that 
limits what the state can do to a significant extent. You can't just say, "Eh, we don't have time for this crap, but that's not really what is going on here. This is not, this is simply not a, this is a claim that just doesn't have any real merit. It's absurd to think that presidents can't face criminal prosecution after they're president. You know, it's this, it's this, it's this, you know, how often have we heard, you know, no one is above the law. Presidents aren't above the law because of this thing where the president is the chief law enforcement officer. You know, that's the that's the attorney general. But the attorney general is acting through the authority of the president that they can't like indict themselves. So, yeah, got to, you know, got to be out of office. And well, so how does that work? Well, you know, you leave it to the political realm to decide, all right, this person needs to leave office. You impeach them. Impeachment happens. If it doesn't happen when they're out of office. It's absurd to think that a president is simply immune from the law forever. Judges have the ability to act expeditiously on claims that just don't have merit. And is, you know, maybe, maybe this this one judge really wants to kind of go to town on what she has to say about it. I've crashed on stories before. It doesn't take three weeks. You know, clear the clear the clear the schedule. And yeah, I mean, as as you I, I think that that it's it's a given that everybody knows this will go to the Supreme Court. It should go to the Supreme Court. It's a this isn't a trivial matter. This is this is, you know, a, a former president, a current candidate. We've known that the Supreme Court could, I mean, Supreme Court could uphold the idea that that Donald Trump can never be prosecuted for anything, or it could you know, say, oh, campaign season, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it could do all sorts of stuff. We've all sort of assumed that, I mean, I think most of us assumed that it, that they won't take it up, that they're not going to get four justices to say, oh, um, we're really not sure what the DC circuit said was, was right. All of that is to say that we know there are bad actors in the mix, but what we're talking about here isn't even the bad actors. We're talking about the good actors not taking their jobs seriously enough to protect the rule of law. It's as simple as that. And there's no other way to put it. They failed us. Yeah. So let's kind of scuttle the order of this episode and and finish up our judge corner um, before we kind of move on to Congress, which is there was this kind of eyebrow raising decision from the Eighth Circuit yesterday, or maybe less eyebrow raising when you consider that there's only one active judge on the Eighth Circuit appointed by a Democrat. You know, it's funny because we're always talking the Fifth Circuit, right? Like that's the big kind of villain of the appellate system. But the Eighth Circuit is super, super conservative. And And tell us what the Eighth Circuit covers, which what parts of the country? So Eighth Circuit covers Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. Um, So, I mean, part of the reason why we're not hearing about it so much is because it doesn't cover these places that are really, um, you know, have the fraught voter cases because they don't have these kind of traditional um, minority communities. But there is a voting rights case there that we've been following at TPM, which started out as a um, a challenge to the Arkansas House of Representatives that, you know, there was NAACP challenge saying that it was uh, disenfranchising black voters, right? Kind of a garden variety 
VRA type thing. This very Trumpy district judge kind of raises on his own reconnaissance the question of like, but can individuals actually bring claims under the VRA at all? Like, why don't you guys brief me on that? Even though none of neither of the parties had brought it up independently. And this is something that Gorsuch and Thomas have been kind of raising in their their writings, right? They're doing their usual like conservative lawyer bat signal thing. They want someone to bring this up. Then a panel um, of all Republicans, even though one of them dissented or all Republican appointees, they said, yep, this guy is correct. Individuals can't bring claims under the VRA, which in action would, I mean, basically end the usefulness of what what is left of that law, because it's always, you know, it's kind of you find some voters in the targeted area and then the work is basically done by, you know, a good government group or a civil rights group who bring these voter dilution claims. Um, NAACP, is, Brennan Center, all these exactly. groups that bring these cases. Yeah. And this is kind of the the most used way to challenge racial gerrymandering on the federal level. And since you can't challenge partisan gerrymandering on the federal level anymore, it's kind of more or less the only game in town, at least right now. And on Tuesday, the full Eighth Circuit, again, on Bonk, said that they're not going to hear this case. So they're not going to kind of take it up, look at what the panel said and potentially, you know, overturn the panel. There was some dissents there. It was actually written by a W. Bush appointee, um, along with this one poor, lone Barack Obama appointee kind of fighting her, her own way. And, you know, he was really candid about it. He said this is a case full of judge-driven mistakes. Um, basically, that this is judges kind of like creating their own law, what they want to be the case, you know, and, and kind of using this case as just a shell vehicle to get what they want passed. And he also points out that we've got some, you know, not square precedent, but Supreme Court precedent where they pretty clearly considered this issue and found that there is a private right of action under Section 2. And that kind of came while they were proving or deciding whether there were private rights of action other under other sections of the VRA. So, you know, these now this Eighth Circuit panel in the district court are like asking us to believe that all these other parts of the VRA you can you can bring as an individual, but Section 2 in particular, which Congress passed specifically to empower citizens kind of against state violation of their rights, that's the one that individuals can't bring, that only the U.S. Attorney General can bring. Like, it's it's totally out of sync with everything else in the law. And and this guy uh, writing in dissent is like, you know, it's, quote, too cute by half to be trying to shove this case through because you think the Supreme Court is reconstituted enough now that it's just going to kind of ignore what previous iterations of its justices said about this. So this case is almost certainly going to go to the Supreme Court now because it's, I mean, it's so devastating to the VRA. The only thing that would maybe keep people from challenging it there is as of now, it only applies in the Eighth Circuit. So only in those states we talked about. And if the Supreme Court upheld it, obviously it would it would have nationwide ramifications. But, you know, just a little a little sprinkling of bad news from over in the Eighth Circuit while the right wing attack on the VRA kind of continues unabated. And just just so I understand this and our, our listeners understand this, this comes down to a, a, a matter of statutory interpretation, right? Like like this, the court, if the Supreme Court, like, let's say, and, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to be a, a thing where no liberal group say, oh, don't touch it. 
let's leave it. Let's let's mm-hmm. let's you know kind of let's quarantine it in the Eighth Circuit because th- someone will come up with something. And and if they don't, the Supreme Court will just say, you know, even without a even without a challenge, let's just let's do it, <laughs> right? They'll they'll find a way. But if they did do it, it would not be because they are saying there's something that violates the Constitution. They're saying that actually the law doesn't allow it. That everybody until now, what fifty years had somehow misunderstood what the law said that that when Congress passed this, they didn't want this to happen. And we're just restoring it to what the law was intended to do, which, again, is is that that's absurd on its face. And as you certainly know, Kate, and, and I think our listeners do, one of the things that the court has increasingly done is take cases where it's quite clear what the intent of the law was but the court basically says oh it's 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 much cloudier than you think and given how cloudy it is let's let's err on the side of not letting any weird stuff happen it's it's you know we we need to within the law within the community of constitutional interpretation there has always been a a realist wing of let's not get into the arguments of the different things you say you want it to be this way and so you're doing it and that's where we are with judicial interpretation in this country you know you can you know don't blow smoke in our face saying how it's not clear what congress wanted just just say you have six votes and and that's how it is Exactly. And this has got all the hallmarks of how right wing judges kind of prefer to do this like hyper textualist type excuse for getting the end result they want, which is if there's any kind of legislative history that is revelatory of what Congress was trying to do in the law, that doesn't matter anymore. Right. Because in this case, they brought up the uh, the comments of a senator when they were re-upping the VRA, which they did many, many times while the entire federal judiciary was operating under the assumption that individuals could bring these lawsuits. And you've got a direct quote, you know, from from a senator talking about how it's important that individuals kind of have this outlet to protect their right to the vote. And then you'll have the right wing people be like, well, that's one legislator. You know, we can't have one guy speak for everyone. There's no possible way to know what they were thinking. And then there'll be like this Supreme Court kind of conversation about Section 2 within this other discussion of on a case of a different part of the VRA. And then the judges are like, that's mere dicta. That that wasn't what that opinion was about. You know, that's just chatter. That doesn't matter. All that matters is the text of the statute to the extreme that you can cut away the text of the other parts of the statute and be like, that's not what we're talking about either. So then it's just you're you're waiting for like one sentence to directly answer the question that they're asking. And we see this in all kinds of stuff, especially in, you know, agency cases where Congress has kind of delegated power in in these broad statutes. And they're like, well, that didn't address how many cubic tons of waste this one power plant is allowed to 
uh, you know, belch out. So we're going to say that this is the statute is silent on this question. I mean, that's how they do it, right? It's not. And then we have to go around pretending that like textualism is this kind of sacrosanct way of applying the law when it's it's the same as anything else. You can contort it so aggressively that it gets you to your end result regardless, you know, and that's how we end up reading these opinions where it's like the definition of the word the, you know, you don't have to take that seriously. We don't have to pretend that textualism is this like super serious scholarly approach. It's it's just the way that they have found it to be most convenient to kind of do away with congressional intent, as you say, do away with the realism, do away with how this will actually affect people and pretend like our hands are bound. This is what the law says. So that's that's the water's edge. That's where we stop. Well, and it's also it's also the case that you could say, look, uh, legislators say all sorts of stuff. They often say different things at the same time. Everybody's trying to read things in into the record. That's not a you know, that's not a thing. And uh, if you want it, you could say, look, we're just going to look at the text and kind of go with that. And that's not really a complete or good way to to do this. But if that's the way you want to do it, that, you know, that there's there's some there's some argument to that. But even that's not what we've seen. It's just it's sort of like when I do my woodworking, I've got a bunch of different tools that I, you know, use. I have hand planes and chisels and and saws. And it's like that. They just kind of you you use the tool you're trying to you're trying to do something and you use the tool that helps you do it. So it's all subterfuge and 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 bullshit. And and for the moment they have the power. But that doesn't mean we have to take seriously this sort of this this nonsense of, uh, about what's happening. We can just see it for what it is, which is they want to change how the state functions. And that's where we are. Right. And, you know, they're hyper aware that voter suppression is the only way to keep Republicans in power, because if we had, you know, a genuine democracy where everyone could vote. And they'd be locked into the minority for the foreseeable future. And and that was a choice, you know, that was a choice of the Republican Party to take the path of making the voter pool kind of small enough and full enough of their voters that they can still win uh, rather than trying to expand their ideology to make it appeal to more people. And, and these these judges are a part of that effort and, you know, consciously part of this that effort. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. So 
Now let's tiptoe over to Congress, uh, where we've seen some, you know, kind of speaking of cynicism, oy vey, we were coming close to the conclusion of this bipartisan border deal, which was conceptually linked to aid to Ukraine and Taiwan and Israel. And you had this like little group of senators who was kind of getting close to the end. And then all of a sudden it was scuttled. And why was it scuttled? Because Donald Trump placed some calls and was like, I don't actually want to lose this border cudgel that has been so effective against Joe Biden. You know, I mean, and this is to the extent that Republicans have any policy preferences right now. It's basically going on Fox News and like kind of screaming about being invaded by by immigrants at every day, day in, day out. Biden's border crisis or being overrun. Right. And he said he didn't want to lose that. He didn't want there to be a deal. He didn't want Biden to get to sign the deal to say, you know, we're cracking down on the border. We're we're taking these efforts to staunch the flow. And all of a sudden, now this deal, which has been kind of the painstaking effort of like kind of legitimate work, you know, for for months, is on life support. Um, Mike Johnson, who prefaces all his comments now by saying that he's in close contact with Donald Trump about these things, which is a very, uh, you know, independent, hard-spined speaker stance to take to reassure everyone that he's kind of doing Trump's bidding at, at every press conference. But he's saying, you know, he hasn't even seen the final text, but he's saying it's dead on arrival and private and public. He's saying, you know, it sure doesn't sound good, you know, despite the fact that this deal is permeated with like, huge democratic concessions. I mean, it's it's very punitive. It's a sign of how damaging this deal is, or this uh, talking point is, that Democrats are willing to be part of this deal, you know, and also because they genuinely do really want aid to Ukraine in particular, and this seemed to be the only way to get it. So now that deal is on life support. It seems likely to die. It may not even get through the Senate now, kind of much less the House. And you've got Republicans pre-candidly admitting what's going on. You know, we don't want to help Joe Biden politically. We're almost, you know, we're in an election year. We don't want to give him any kind of legislative on on a topic where we so enjoyed kind of wailing on him for the past few months. And then you've got the only kind of Republican vertebrates left, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis, who are angry about it, you know, who are saying this is appalling. The idea that you would go around screaming that the border is in crisis and then turn around and say, hmm, not politically advantageous for us to fix that right now. So we're just going to kind of let this slide, especially within the context of the idea that legislating on immigration has been almost uniquely difficult, right? Because it's it's a place where, I mean, traditionally Democrats and Republicans are ideologically very far apart. It's complicated. It would require like giant fixes to actually address it, which is not something Congress is usually kind of capable of doing in any context. And here you've got this perfect situation where Republicans have gone so far right on the border that honestly, they've kind of yanked Democrats with them or Democrats Mm -hmm. have acceded to being yanked. You know, like I I do think it's a big part of this that Democrats have been doing the the tough on crime thing where they're trying to be kind of Republican light on the border and uh, echoing a lot of the kind of brutal language. But that's a situation you've got where Republicans could not hope to get a better deal that has more punishment without, you know, a path to citizenship or things that for a long time were Democratic hard lines in immigration legislation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And still, I mean, this deal is all but dead because 
Trump wants there to be a border crisis. The one the thing that struck me, I mean, you know, uh, uh, politicians make cynical decisions all the time. But what's what one thing that struck me was that they basically, you know, they've 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 sort of denied it now. But at least at the beginning, Johnson was pretty clear. Like, yeah, we got to wait for Trump. This is no, you know, no can do. They were they're pretty they were pretty open about it actually um which is you know i mean i i guess a certain uh, kudos for transparency um i i i do think that uh well we'll see how i i i think that you know the reason democrats are doing this is that this is the one issue where republicans have an advantage politically that's just the reality whether that should be the reality whether that reality should matter those are those are real questions but it is reality that it it is something that is hurting democrats um electorally and so they are you know kind of getting on the bandwagon on on a lot of a lot of these things and and one thing that we that is worth noting here is you know whether you want to call it a crisis or the border is lawless or out of control. It's it's not lawless. There's just a lot of people showing up, right? I mean, that's 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 not you know the, the that's not law. But the the thing that I think is is worth stepping back is a lot more people are coming, and they're coming from places that they didn't. It used to be the U.S.-Mexico border was basically Mexican immigrants, often un- undocumented, you know, coming over the border. That's, you know, uh, I, I grew up in Southern California. That, that's that been a, a, a thing forever, you know, almost as far back to when many of these parts of the country were part of Mexico. Now you have lots of 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 people coming from Central America. That has to do with instability in Central America. It probably has to do in in a big picture with climate change, which is going to be an increasing issue going forward that you're just going to have more and more uh immigration. And and so I get my 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 point here is that separate out everything all the politics of this, that we are moving into an era with more instability, often driven by climate, and more immigration. And you've got to sort of figure out how to address that politically. But zooming in, what we need to see is what you what you do politically, the blocking and tackling politically in a case like this is you have Democrats say, we got a deal here to fix the border. The things you say are necessary. Why do you suddenly not want to fix the border? You know, as long as as, uh, one may not agree, we should be, quote unquote, fixing the border like this. But as long as Democrats have made the decision to support it, you at least should beat the Republicans over the head with it, that they're politically being hypocrites. I mean, it's just, you know, it's basic blocking and tackling. Yeah, exactly. Like my larger quibble on this topic is that I think Democrats have all but abandoned presenting any other case on immigration than what Republicans are saying. And and you're totally right. It's, it's electorally damaging to them. But we never hear 
the stuff we used to about how, you know, immigrants are the lifeblood of this country, about how people wanting to come here is good and something we should be proud of um, and something we should make easier. I mean, that argument has truly been abandoned. And now Democrats are just kind of scampering around being like, oh, don't hit us too hard while Republicans are talking about yeah, and they have been, I mean, for years, right? Since Trump came on the scene, they've they've seen the political expediency of the caravans and and I mean at the Republican primary debates, we kind of saw how far this has gotten, where they were all basically jockeying with each other to be like, who would shoot the most immigrants on site at the border? I mean, and that's not even hyperbole. Most of them you had Ron DeSantis saying, like, I would just shoot them dead, right? I mean, it's atrocious. And I think it's ridiculous how much ground Democrats have ceded on this topic. But I totally agree with you. In this moment, that ground has been ceded. They have made, I think, what is a pretty immoral choice on this topic to kind of go along with it or not put up any kind of opposition to the the greater framing of the topic. So now the very freaking least you can do is be out there every single day with a perfectly gift-wrapped rebuttal to every time Republicans say Biden's border crisis were being overrun. I mean, they have the perfect rebuttal of we tried to fix it and you decided not to because you thought that would help Trump get elected. I mean, that should be a slam dunk. And I have got to say, I still haven't seen it enough. You have some individual Democrats who are making the case fairly well, but there's been no coherent message on this from leadership. We're not hearing about it enough from, you know, Biden and the White House. The best messengers so far have been from within the Republican ranks, which a little bit, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Nikki Haley last week, that because of media bias, Republicans on Republican violence is always going to be covered more than Democratic on Republican violence that is baked in a little bit. But there should be a full court press on this issue from Democrats that there hasn't been. And I'm not quite sure why. I think there might be some trepidation, the idea that maybe possibly the deal will still come together and they don't want to kind of hammer it if there's still any chance of yeah. life. You've got Mike Johnson out there saying it's dead on arrival. What chance of life is that? Like a chance of getting it through the Senate? That's not a big enough prize that's worth kind of seeding this perfect talking point. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess they may feel uh, there's a certain argument that you get it through the Senate and then it's a more effective cudgel. Not that not that Mike Johnson is going to do it. But you say, okay, it's right here. It's already been passed by the Senate. The only thing slowing it down is the House and and Mike Johnson. Because until then, you could they can kind of say, well, it was someone was discussing something in the Senate and blah blah blah. You know, all 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 that kind of stuff. But yeah, and and look, I mean, there's you know one of the you know population growth has really slowed down. In the United States, because like every other uh, wealthy industrialized country, people have fewer kids. There's the whole, you know, you get into this whole sort of like, you know, incel thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's Taylor Swift and her boyfriend. They're already in their thirties, and what are they waiting for? You know, every alpha male has to find a a fertile twenty year old woman and pump out 50 babies. You know, it's, it's not that. This is this is just how societies function. But if you want to have sustained economic growth, you need population growth. And how do you have, you know, th this is a basic structural problem the US economy has. And you're like, if only there were a way to solve this and bring back healthy population growth. Well, it turns out there's volunteers 
literally showing up at our doorstep, wanting to kind of come and show up and get to work and blah, 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 blah. And it is true that, you know, there is a certain uh, friction that just inevitably, and I don't, I don't mean cultural friction or political friction. If you have a lot of immigrants, it, you, they have to be, you know, integrated into the society, right? They don't, they don't, there's not, there's not jobs literally waiting for them, a specific job waiting when you show up at the border, but it's all doable. And it's actually, as you say, and this is, this is an argument that you're right. Democrats have largely been scared off of, which is, we actually need a lot of immigrants. So given that lots of people are showing up and want to come and work here, let's do it. That's a that's an argument that is waiting for. I mean, I, I will say that there is a larger political question here because large scale immigration frequently causes a political backlash. And you can say it's white supremacy. You can say it's cultural insecurity. It's kind of all of those things. But immigration largely driven by the Arab Spring and, and the Syrian civil war basically created the authoritarian movements that now sort of bedevil Europe, created them, you know, it, it made them a thing. And, you know, and, and when we had really, really big levels of immigration in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it's when men, it's when pretty much all of my ancestors came to, well, it's a little more complicated than that, but my personal history is not really the point. When that happened, there was eventually a big backlash. And and the US basically kind of shut down immigration, large-scale immigration for about half a century. So we, do, we also have to grapple with the fact that there is something kind of in human nature that often makes societies resistant to, to large levels of foreign immigration. And the fact that we call that white supremacy, cultural insecurity, all these kind of things doesn't make it not the case. And so politically, we've got to figure out how to make all this work without large scale immigration creating uh, the sort of the tinder of authoritarian movements in the United States. You know, it's, it, it is easy to say, and we should say, we're all immigrants here and and we've had like tons of immigration and and we had it in the late 19th century we've had it for the last like 30 or 40 years but again there is this dynamic and we also need to figure out how to manage that dynamic because it is it's you know we're not the only country that where that dynamic uh, takes place though one could argue that we're having the authoritarian backlash without letting a lot of people into the country as of right now so as of right yeah no absolutely 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 i mean it's it's um yeah i mean the point is my point is just that it is a it is a dynamic that pro immigration political forces need to figure out how to manage because you can be you can be right but that doesn't make you necessarily effective. And you need to, we need to collectively figure out how to, um, how to do both. Right. So we're going to kind of wrap up here with one of the Senate races that we're watching most closely coming into 2024, where listeners will remember uh, Democrats have just a brutal map 
to defend, right? I mean, West Virginia, Ohio, Montana, and then the usual batch of swingy states. One of those being Arizona, where the big question mark has been, will Kirsten Cinema run again? We here at the pod, our editorial position, I think, has been for quite a while that she probably won't because she doesn't seem like a politician who'd want her career to kind of end with such a resounding thumping as she would near inevitably get in this race. And now that we're starting to get closer to some kind of key deadlines, we're starting to amass some data points that suggest she is not planning to run. The The biggest of those is we've got an April 8th deadline for her signature collection. And since she's running as an independent, her signature thresholds are a little bit different than candidates at the major parties. April, early April is a pretty close as our, you know, that's that's an astute observation. She hasn't even kind of filed her statement of intent, which is that first little, you know, here's my form. I'm going to run. I'm going to start doing this. The more you kind of drag that out and don't start the signature collection, the more expensive it gets because you've got to obviously hire more people to kind of get all these signatures within an even more condensed time frame. Her fundraising has just bottomed out really ever since she left the Democratic Party. She's got like 10 million on hand right now, but nearly all of that she'd collected back when she was still officially a Democrat. This last quarter, the last of 2023, has been her worst one in years, even kind of going back to 2017, 2018, when, you know, requirements were lower. So she's not really collecting any money. She's not really doing events. She hardly has anyone hired, which you'd expect in these kind of, you know, early stage campaign stuff. You need people to start laying the foundation at the very least. And then especially as an especially as an independent, because if you're if you're still the partisan candidate, you have the state party, you have an infrastructure that that an independent has to kind of build from scratch. So if anything, you'd expect more activity, not, as you say, basically no activity. Right. And that goes for fundraising as well. Right. She doesn't she doesn't get to use the party infrastructure for that either. So that's like solely kind of her own brand has to be enough to bring in the money. So all of that is kind of indicating, you know, if if she's going to run, she would have to kind of start signature collection like now or it's going to kind of become more expensive by the millions, you know, she won't talk about it classically. Um, the, The biggest kind of story we've gotten about her is in the past few days um the daily beast published a story showing that she spends astronomical amounts of her senate budget on private flights that she kind of charters jets to bop all over arizona and then you know you had the classic side-to-side comparison with mark kelly who has apparently never used his senate salary uh to, to pay for a private jet. And, you know, the realities are if there are politicians who are going to be kind of more inclined to use those, you'd expect them to be the ones who are from the gigantic states that don't have that much stuff in them, like, I don't know, South Dakota or something. Arizona <laughs> has a, a highway network. Like, it's not that hard to kind of drive from from city to city. But I guess she she has a predilection for these kind of finer things. And it, maybe she should talk with like uh, Ron DeSantis. I know. I think they have this. Who's in another common, exactly. another private jet guy? Yeah, aficionado, yeah. right? And this kind of it comes on the heels of a lot of built up reporting about her, especially in the kind of Arizona state and local media, which is. We've had stories about, you know, the jet stuff. We've had stories about how she'll 
make put her campaign events close to uh you know marathons or races that she's running so she can write everything off as a, a campaign expense that you know she when she ran the boston marathon she stayed in the four seasons right like all this kind of th- stuff that it, it all adds to the same picture right that this is this super weirdly out of step with her party like pro-business, pro-consultant, I guess independent now, who's got a a taste for the finer things. So all that's happening at once, right? As we're getting closer to these deadlines and and as she's making absolutely no moves indicating that she's going to run. So, I mean, at this point, if if you are a human incarnation of the New York Times needle, where do you think it is on the she won't run, she will run spectrum? Honestly, I would say her running is like 10%. And I think that's like, I think that's aggressive in favor of her running. I mean, everything, everything you've described is what happens when someone is not running. And and they often understandably kind of like, why do I commit myself any sooner than I need to? Obviously, you sort of lose some additional relevance once you you know, once you say definitively that you're lame duck, that you're not running, but it's obvious that she's not running. I think it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable that she would run just the basic thing you say about collecting signatures. I mean, if she, if she decided today I am running, it's not like she doesn't have enough time to collect signatures. You just spend a ton of money and you get people to go out and you cut, you know, it is doable. But it just seems totally obvious to me that she's not running and and good, you know, good riddance. I don't think there's anybody who thinks she would not come in third place. And in the nature of partisan polarization, third place, I think, inevitably means at most like 15 percent because Democrats know who the Democrat is. And that, A, he's the Democrat, and most Democrats really kind of hate Kristen Sinema at this point, but she's not going to win. So if you're a Democrat and you want to win, you're going to you're gonna uh, vote for Gallego. Same with uh, Carrie Lake. So she doesn't want to end, she doesn't want to f- end her career with like coming in third with 8% of, that's humiliating. So she's not going to run. And, but, but really, it forces us to look at this mystery of what happened here. What happened here you know every you know when she was sort of driving everybody crazy in 2021 and 2022 or you know driving democrats crazy not republicans they were loving it there were all these people that she's got this secret plan and the vent you know the 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 hedge funds are gonna bail her out and she's gonna get a it this has always been her plan you know it's all her devious plan is 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 working out none of that makes sense this is someone who has uh been in politics for 25 years not elected politics but have been in politics for 25 years started as kind of a very fringy green party person but she has been climbing the electoral political ladder for years and to give her her due very successfully. You know, when she kind of got started at this, Arizona was much more clearly red. She, I believe she, you know, she started in, in the state legislature, got a house seat, which was a, you know, 
at the time, it was considered a big deal that she was one of the first openly bisexual political candidates. Um, and that was a big deal. Her her political profile was very, very different. The fact that she managed to get elected as a Democrat at senator and someone with who was seen as, you know, this brash, uh, politically brash, the sort of the kind of wild clothes that she was openly bisexual, all of that, you know, her 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 fiscal policy may have been more conventional, but that that that's not how you run in a red state. Right. And she managed to climb this ladder, get elected to the Senate, which was a big deal as a Democrat. And then she just lit the whole thing on fire. And we can, we can, and I do say like, good riddance, you suck. You just, you, you betrayed your, your um, constituents and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't answer the question. How do you work that hard and just light your career on fire? And, you know, is she going to get a job at a, at a hedge fund? You know, maybe, but that whole thing never made sense because why? She, she's not going to be a senator anymore. So maybe someone's going to put her on a board just to kind of say thanks for the carried interest thing. But like she has no yeah. power anymore. People people have short memories. That thing was always baffling to me. The people who were like, well, she'll get a lobbying gig, like as if it's hard to parlay being a U.S. senator into being a lobbyist. Like that's got to be the most easily rotated door in all of history. Well, but not only that, it's. Any but any former legislator can get some lobbying gig, but to get a choice lobbying gig, the one thing you need is you need to be liked. That is your whole calling card. You know them. They're going to take your calls. You can go onto the Senate, literally go onto the Senate floor as a as, as a former senator. You can hang out and all that stuff. If everybody in your party hates you, you are not an effective lobbyist. You 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 were worth nothing. And so the whole again, all of the 12 dimensional chess explanations are absurd. And you come down to this thing that someone who worked very hard for years to sort of climb that pole, climb that ladder and again, give her her due. You know, now there's two there's two. Democratic senators from Arizona. But man, that was not a thing like for forever. She really she pulled something off that was incredibly hard. And a lot of people thought were impossible. And it's just it's just weird. It's just weird. It doesn't make any sense. And and it's it's still basically a mystery. There's this new piece out from, uh, I don't know, the Times or the Post, one of those, but it's it's kind of like inside the cinema decision. And it opens with, you know, some some anonymous Republican consultant who's working with her who's saying what they're trying to decide is whether voters will reward her for all of the kind of legislative achievements that she's pulled off. This idea that she is usually in the mix of these kind of bipartisan Senate groups, you know, that did the the modest gun reform bill that's working on this border thing now, um, you know, the infrastructure deal that she was kind of and, and by all accounts does seem to be in the inner circle of kind of negotiators on these cross the aisle packages. And it's just 
hilarious to me that, that, you know, if this is true, that her decision to run has these, you know, political minds pondering if voters are going to reward bills that by all accounts, based on Biden's struggles, they don't know what they are, much less are going to connect that this one senator was any more kind of integral in in executing them than the rest of the body. Whether they're going to reward that, which in- includes as one of the, the listed crown jewels, this border deal that is almost certainly not going to become law over the ostentatious displays of sheer disdain for her former party that were her hallmarks for the time at which she was getting by far the most media attention, you know, and that's whether that be kind of scuttling the, uh, you know, the different planks of the former build back better or, you know, doing her little curtsy thumbs down to raising the minimum wage. It's like, are you kidding me? You think you don't know which way voters are going to come down on that? (laughs) No, it it, is. There's so many levels. I mean, I, I I would have I wish I could have been in on that reporting call because like I can answer that for you. No. <laughs> right. I mean, because as you say, they're not I mean, Biden like did all this stuff. And from what we can tell, most voters like not moving. They, the don't, needle. <laughs> they don't even know what happened or that anything. So like, oh, you know, Kirsten, you know, was up that one night with like Barrasso. <laughs> yeah you know, kind of kind of putting it together. I mean, you know, it's just absurd. And on a more substantive level, uh, on on the big things, what really happened is her basically being the person who said, no, mm-hmm. we're not going to do it. And once she shut it down, then tried to get a different group together to do something different. So it's not that is kind of a necessary part of the two-step. Like you could have actually just done build that better, but she shut that. I mean, there's obviously all sorts of moving parts here, but basically she and Manchin shut that down. And once they shut it down said, okay, let's do mini build back better. And she did kind of negotiate that, but that was because she killed the first thing. And the funny thing is, is that again, it's sort of like, we already know the answer to this because all Democrats in the state hate her. And I mean, I'm not just like saying this. I mean, the polls have made this really clear. She has she's like reviled it by state Democrats. Republicans, you know, passed the popcorn while it was all happening. So just no one likes her. And and it's just so, you know, again, I wish I could have been on that reporting call because I could answer that question. I guess like an internal memo charting out her path to reelection leaked and it And, you know, so this is the most optimistic view of things. This is how she wins the race. And it had her winning 20 percent of Democrats, 20 percent, 75 percent of independents and 35 percent of Republicans. And it's just like, okay, I mean, I guess we can play like fantasy politics all day, but that's ridiculous. (laughs) That's obviously not going to happen, you know. So, you know. Yeah, it's just, you know, you can't you 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 just you just um, you. The funny thing is that, you know, a John McCain could have done something like this because it, you know, I don't want to get too much into uh, McCain hagiography, but you can do something like that 
if you are basically sticking it to the activist base of your party, right? And in a case like that, you can say like, all right, I'm kind of sticking it to those guys, but most kind of, you know, garden variety, you know, kind of uh, rank and file types still know I kind of do the right stuff. I mean, it's kind of uh, Biden obviously didn't do this in 2020, but that's in a in a very broad sense, the kind of thing you're talking about. I mean, as as we know from Hunter's book, he definitely he was very much not saying, oh, forget the squad, forget these people. But at a basic level, he he was implicitly saying, certainly in the primaries, like, hey, I, I'm not down the line on every single thing, but I'm a Democrat. I support, you know, especially the things that are plaus- politically plausible. I support those. I support most of what you want. Let's all get together and do this. And you can you can play on those divisions and make it work. And she managed to convince a certain amount of the commentariat in D.C. that that was what she was doing. But really, she wasn't doing anything like that. She was just saying, fuck all you people, all you Democrats. I'm going to really focus on things like, you know, carried interest loopholes, which is just this thing that kind of the the, the wildly rich use not to pay taxes. Again, who cares even whether it's right or wrong? No one even knows. No one who's not worth at least $30 million even knows what it is. And again, I just come back to it. Hate her all you want. I hate her. She's terrible. But it still doesn't answer this question. What happened? What happened? You I don't know, work that whole- hard to become a U.S. senator to throw it away after one term. This whole idea, you know, as you say with McCain, like, oh, she's she's doing a maverick thing, right? The reason why people liked the John McCain maverick stuff is because every time he did it in the most kind of famously remembered times, it was a moral stand, right? Like it was kind of refusing to tear apart the Affordable Care Act when Republicans had no replacement, right? And for all intents and purposes, that just would have like plunged people into suffering. You know, it's stopping the, you know, the woman from calling Obama a Muslim, even if he did it in this kind of indelicate, you know, (laughs) he's not a Muslim, he's a good man, you know, but still it's like, that's kind of- (laughs) That's the thought that counts, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. That was the heart of it. But then her big mavericky stands were like being an asshole about the minimum wage or being like, oh, I know Democrats, you're all so mad about abortion, but I- refuse to even countenance the idea of filibuster reform, even just specifically for abortion legislation. Right. So it's it's like you say, it's not you know, flipping off an activist based. It's kind of taking the very roots of what it means to be a Democrat and being like, not just I'm not going to do that. I'm also going to be really flouncy and ostentatious about it. And then I'm going to go behind closed doors and do the hard work of kind of negotiating these watered down agreements, which is like, I mean, have you ever been in American politics? Like when has that ever been a compelling and who cares? Screen? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, at the end of the day, McCain, every time when he was doing a mavericky thing, the thing he was supporting was something that was actually supported by majorities of both yeah. parties. It just wasn't part of the orthodoxy of his party. And that works. But but supporting, so, you know, but as a Democrat saying, you know, I it, we'd have to think about what the thing is, but it's but, you know, being against reimportation of prescription drugs, 
No one likes that. It's she's like a she's like Bizarro McCain. Yeah, she's going to she's going to, you know, buck her party to support something that no one in either party likes. Like, it's very mavericky, but that's how you end your Senate career after <laughs> yeah. one term. I mean, congrats if that was the plan. But why do you spend so much time getting there if that was the plan? It's exactly. again, there's just no answer for how this happened. So then just the other little piece here that could potentially make Arizona a more like comfortable experience for Democrats is that Carrie Lake seems by all accounts to be kind of cruising for the nomination right now. And they put up this like sheriff to try to challenge her. Um, but she's beloved by the base. And then we had this big kerfuffle where she basically forced the ouster of the Arizona GOP chair by blackmailing him with recordings of their conversation, <laughs> including one where, to be honest, he kind of did what his job is, which is trying to convince her not to run because she's so obviously a completely toxic general election candidate. And he is, you know, granted in it very inartfully is trying to be like what you want to be on the board somewhere. How much? Give me a dollar amount to keep you out of this race. <laughs> she leaks the the audio, you know, and then she says he, she's got more. If he doesn't resign, he resigns. Uh, so, you know, by all measures, it seems like she's cruising, right? She is got to be by and away the favorite to be the Republican nominee in this race, which is, you know, great news for the Democrats and for Ruben Gallego, because as she proved when she ran for governor, uh, you know, Arizona, as you said, is still very recently a red state. You know, this is by no means the Democratic lock. But she's someone who so thoroughly established herself as an absolute loon that, you know, if there's anyone who's going to fumble it, she's the best person to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of Gallego, but I, I when he was, you know, as people hated cinema more and more, everybody was trying to draft him because he's the sort of mm -hmm. the, the, the obvious uh, uh, Democrat to run. But he's fair. I mean, He's not, I'm not sure he's left wing, but he's certainly on the progressive wing of the, you know, progressive wing of the House caucus. And that's great. But it's but again, it's this is a state that is only just becoming kind of purple. So a lot of people had concerns like, can he, you know, can he win a statewide uh, statewide race? And I I had those concerns, too. I mean, not that I have any great insight into the nuts and bolts of of Arizona politics but just again you you a uh, Mark Kelly is kind of probably that's the safe bet you know kind of a veteran all that you know astronaut kind of good stuff but like can he can he beat Carrie Lake like yeah I'd, I'll, I'll put money on that like that's yeah. it's certainly not it's certainly not a, like a like a slam dunk um she didn't I mean you know as far as she's concerned, she is governor of Arizona, but it's not like uh, Hobbs, uh, you know, it's not like it was blowout. Right. So no, it, it was be, really close. Be, yeah. Yeah, it was very it was very close, which is, you know, pretty, pretty telling because she was pretty, pretty whack during that election, too. But like if you're if you're Ruben Gallego, like if you've got a choice, like, yeah, she's the one like she's the one, you know, she's the one you want to run at. Uh, so yep. there you go. So that's the Grand Canyon state for you. There you go. So I guess we have we we have covered the full terrain of American politics, haven't we? Boom. Yeah. All right. Well, this is this is going to be this was the YOLO episode. 
<laughs> of uh, of the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, you know, kind of like network Howard Beale, right? That whole thing, <laughs> kind of kind of that vibe. But anyway, I think we've covered the territory. Uh, remember, we're sponsored this week by uh, the Truce by uh, Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin. Available uh, at bookstores uh, everywhere. You know, great book. I read it. Um, I, I I learned a lot from it. So uh, I think that's it for this week. And we'll be back with you next week with um, some more high quality podcast content. All right. See you then. Later, folks. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader